Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 54. I'm your host, Pavel Bramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information and additional content, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Sasha Djurjevic. Sasha, a CIM FMA DMS, is a portfolio manager serving global private and institutional clients at his firm Rebel Wealth in Canada. He has extensive capital markets experience and has held senior investment roles amongst prominent investment companies in Canada. He currently lives in Vancouver with his wife and four children. Sasha, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pavel. Awesome. Super excited to have you on. Welcome back to those four children. I have kind of, I have questions how you're handling that, but, <laughs> but for now, let's dive in. So tell me a little bit about, about your firm. I disclosed a little bit in your bio, but tell me in your own words, what do you do and who do you serve? For sure. First, I just want to say I've listened to a lot of episodes of the show. I'm a fan of the show and I'm really glad to be on here. So thanks very much for having me. That's awesome. Yeah. What I guess I can tell you about with the business is that it is a primarily a retail practice. I've got institutional clients as well. And really what we are doing here isn't super different from our peer group. We are a wealth manager and planner. Where we differ uh, a little bit is that I have a unique client base, most of whom lived as expatriates of Canada at one point. In general, the clients have repatriated at some point. And so we've dealt with a lot of the nuance of what it's like to be a Canadian who lives offshore, uh, what that experience is like, and then what it's like to repatriate. And for many people, that is an interesting and unique challenge. Absolutely. So this is really interesting. So in terms of how your firm is structured, you know, what is, you know, what is kind of the licensing around that? And, you know, if you can maybe share, I know your clients are a little different, but uh, if you can share maybe now average clients, you know, size or things like that, or number of clients that you're dealing with right now, you know, as really as much as you're comfortable for the context for the listeners. For sure. So, so it's a completely independent firm. The dealer that I'm a part of is Aligned Capital Partners. Our back office is the National Bank Correspondent Network. And I really have the, the flexibility you know, within the regulatory environment of IROC to serve our clients in, in the way that you know, makes the most sense for them and to do things in, in their best interests. So uh, we've set ourselves up as a team of four. I do the, the bulk of the, the client service, the financial planning, the investment management, but I have a full-time staff of three people. One person does the bulk of my trade execution and the other two team members do the bulk of the administrative work as well as client relationships. And the goal for all of us really is to give clients as high quality of an experience as possible. And so everything we do is under the view that you know we're trying to give clients a particular type of experience in, in working with us. And so that's what our team of four does. That's awesome. And I want to get get into it as well. But before we dive into that, let's go back to the beginning. You know, sure. Why does this business exist for you? Yeah, why does this work matter? Why do you get up every single day and go to work? Yeah, for sure. So I have had a really great career. There, I can kind of bucket my experience into one of three sort of main parts. I guess the first one is the product side. So I've, I've worked with 
a number of different institutions in structuring, uh, derivative products like structured products, principal protected notes, uh, Delta One products, as well as uh, 81102 products like mutual funds and exchange traded funds. So I've seen the product life cycle for the bulk of the products that exist in the in the retail channel. And having been a part of the thought process around structuring, around marketing and how things are going to be marketed to people. I'm now using that experience as a way to help identify what the best options are for clients. So that's the product side. But I've also had a, you know, a reasonable background in the idea generation side, which really, you know, my, I spent a number of years in, in New York City with, uh, with an Australian investment bank where what I was doing was communicating our firm's research to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers around actionable ideas. And I think that that's really important because for a lot of advisors, they're going to do one thing. And they don't necessarily have the experience to know about uh, multiple different markets or multiple different investment vehicles. And so what I've tried to do with that idea generation side is incorporate that into my process as well. You know, it's 2020 and, and we have to be flexible and, and use, you know, second order thinking on a lot of what's happening in the world. And so that idea generation side of my background, I viewed as something that would fit in uh, pretty well into retail. And then the last part of it was that before I came into IROC, I was a portfolio manager at an institution two different institutions in Toronto where I managed institutional money. When you are in that type of a role, you have a fiduciary responsibility and it's one that you take very seriously, but as well, you have to have a really systematic process and it kind of teaches you in that role. And so when I looked at you know my, my product knowledge, the idea generation side and the systematic way about thinking about portfolio management, I, I saw it as an opportunity in retail to really make a difference for clients mm-hmm. by thinking uh, in those unique ways. And that really, in addition to some of the lifestyle things that maybe we can talk about a little, little bit later, sure. my background just really fit for retail. And so I've found that I'm able to use those bits of experience and background to help clients better understand you know, their situation. That's fantastic. So I really like that. So really started with the product and a really great product understanding and then the idea generation and then international exposure as well. And so that, that's just really rounded, really nicely, uh, rounded sets of experience. It really nicely sort of lends itself towards serving clients, especially because your clients are you know, non-residents experts. I mean, they have very unique needs, right? So when you think about serving your clients, are you focused on a specific geographic area, for example, where it's Europe or Asia or Southeast Asia? I know there is a movement at some point to basically, you know, everybody try to basically, you know, uh, target Southeast Asia because of the many different reasons related to lifestyle as well, ability to basically live on, I don't know, less than $10 US a day, things like that. So do you have any niche in terms of the people that you serve or it's sort of the really global and you have clients in many different countries across the globe? Yeah. So the way that I would describe it is that clients, what, what I've found is that trying to bucket people and say that, you know, if you're a non-resident, you have these unique issues is useful to a point. But the reality is, is every client is different. And sometimes some of those differences may be that that same client, when they live in one jurisdiction versus another, their investment options may be different. But what I'd say first is, is to answer the question is that 
When dealing with non-residents, the critical issues are how does the regulator view that market? How well do you know that client? And does your compliance department even allow you to do business in in those markets, right? And so, first off, you got you have to be uh, operating within you know with the support of of the industry and make sure you're you're talking to the right people. And so, we don't do any marketing in these foreign jurisdictions. We're not giving investment recommendations in those jurisdictions, and we're not actively looking for new clients in those jurisdictions, right? We're growing organically, and you know, my my goal has really been to to say to these people who, in many ways, are almost unbanked when many countries when their citizens leave and and move to somewhere else they're treated almost as if they're still a citizen for some other countries and you know for canada it's a kind of like this once you leave canada you know a lot of the uh, institutions just don't want to deal with you and it could be that you know maybe it's a a fund serve product and certain fund companies don't allow their products to be uh, bought by residents in particular jurisdictions and then you know similarly when some of these clients repatriate they could have a very very meaningful level of assets but a bank for example won't want to give them a mortgage right and so there's a lot of nuance to being that that non-resident person and they're going to need a lot of guidance along the way and and so i you know i i think just to to summarize there is that we treat everybody individually everyone's situation is is unique and while they do have some similarities like things like not non-withholding tax on on income as as foreigners in large part it's the planning side that makes the biggest difference for them. There is lots that we can do as well from, you know, from a cost point of view or from a tax point of view, but really it's going to be the planning and the advice side that they're going to need the most help with uh, when they're going and coming back. That all makes sense. And it's it's really interesting, right? Because I was just thinking about tax. You mentioned that withholding tax, right? But I think there's a lot of value you can actually add to those people because as you mentioned, I mean, large institutions don't necessarily want to deal with them. They're a nuisance, right? They're, the market is very small. It might be big enough for you know a lot of companies, for example, for your company to become you know a large company, for example, serving that market. But overall, from the perspective, you know, one of the top five banks in Canada, for example, or or their their wealth management arms. I mean, that's a tiny market, right? And it's and so I totally understand that they sort of try to ignore it, and and basically, I mean, that's an opportunity, opportunity for you. So that's awesome. It is. And, you know, I think for them, Pavel, what, what makes sense is, you know, there's a lot of talk in our industry about scale. And if you are a large domestic institution, it's a lot easier to add scale by adding more people like you already have, right? So if it's moms and dads in, in Vancouver, you just keep adding more moms and dads in Vancouver. And so, they, you know, you have to have a institution that understands that business. You have to have an advisor an advisor who really understands that part of the market as well. And so, you know, just not everyone can, even though this seems like an interesting business, something with a bit of a moat around it, it's not for everybody for a number of different reasons. Makes sense. Makes sense. Absolutely. So in terms of geographic sort of overlap, uh, we haven't, I mean, uh, when I ask a question, I typically ask five or six up questions there. Sure. So it's, it's hard to answer this, but I'm curious, it's uh, in terms of just where are clients typically located or, I mean, if, or where do you have clients? If you can name, I, I don't know, top five countries, for example. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, so so what I I've got a number of clients in in the Middle East. We've we've got clients on basically all continents, none of which are in countries that are obviously closed. And so these are all, but there's there's tremendous variety. I mean, uh, I think at the moment there's almost thirty different countries 
represented in this in this book of business. And so, and you know, sometimes these clients are also moving. So let me give you a couple examples of, of sure. a type of client. So you might have been a, a pilot at Air Canada, and then you get an offer to join Emirates to be a pilot there. And so you're a Canadian, you lived in Canada, but now you're living over there. And the second you leave, you know, your financial institution says to you, well, you know, we can't do business with you anymore, right? So uh, for a lot of clients, they would like to have their assets custodied in Canada. They want to work with someone that they know and, and still trust. And I'm trying to, you know, be that person within the context of the regulatory environment for, for them. You know, another another example of that is you, you might have been an engineer in the oil patch in in Alberta. In Alberta, you take a, an opportunity in the in the Middle East, and the client would likely have the same kinds of considerations, but might have a very different experience living, you know, in, in one country in the Middle East versus versus the other. And so, those are the types of uh, the types of clients. These aren't people who are you know going offshore. These are working working mm-hmm. Canadians who are seeking an opportunity elsewhere elsewhere for whatever their reason is and. You know, for very good reasons, still like to keep their money with someone in Canada. Right. So we're not talking about tax havens. We're talking about regular people traveling and living different places yeah, in the world. Exactly. Just make it clear. Yeah, uh, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's cool. That's really cool. So it's uh, so let's dive into a little bit more. Just you know, approaching of uh, advising and serving those clients because, as sure. you said earlier, every client they have individual needs. So I would imagine that your planning needs are are going to be very diverse, right? So how deep do you get into those? I mean, do you really focus on the on the planning side from the perspective? Of you know, typically, I mean, those clients would have some sort of connection to Canada, right? Yeah. So, how deep do you get into the planning side, and and what is your process? Do you start with the planning first? I mean, I'm curious to dive into some of the aspects of, of how you approach serving and advising clients. Yeah, for sure. So, I would kind of say that there are a lot of different ways that advisors do this this part of the business, right? And so, the financial planning side is often used as a way for a client to have an idea of where they want to be and where they are today. And, and you know what the delta is between those two points. The other thing that I've seen you know more and more of is planning around like objectives or goal-based financial planning. But one thing that I've noticed in in talking to people has been that I think in large part many clients there, there's a bit of a information asymmetry where the advisor knows a lot and we ask the question to clients, but the client doesn't always know what the answers are. And so what what I've tried to do is really emphasize the dialogue between us and the education from from us to them around what's even possible, right? And and I find that often when talking to clients, they have a a kind of a a basic idea, but they haven't really done the, the work yet of thinking about what's possible. So what I'm trying to do is have that conversation to then help inform what should be in that financial plan, right? And I think there's a lot of time spent early on with the financial plan on on bringing in as much data as you can without enough time spent on really what's what's the objective right on on getting up to speed on understanding what you really want so so that's one part of it but then to answer your question i would say is that my the details of the financial plan are actually i would describe them as a little more general 
than some of my peer group who might be highly specific. And, and the primary reason I say that I'm a little more general is that often when you think about your own life or you ask a client about their life and you say, how good is your predictive power on what your life looks like five years from now? The feedback I get and my anecdotal evidence is not great. You know, we're not very good at this part, right? We can't predict into the future very well for a number of different reasons. And so it's something I think about a lot. And I think it comes from the the US Marine Corps, and they call it the 70% rule. And the idea is, instead of trying to come up with the perfect plan, come up with a plan that does a pretty good job of reflecting what's in front of you and what you know, and then put your effort into that plan, put your full effort into that plan. And then adjust over time. As things change in the background, adjust. And, and I mean, a good mathematical version of that is if you think about like Bayes' theorem, where you know what your inputs are, but then as you get new information, you continually adjust to try to have a more probabilistic outcome, right? So that's what I'm trying to do here as well, is have the dialogue with the clients, come to an understanding of what they're really looking for. And then we look at the inputs in the model, the sort of the main levers that we can pull on to then update that plan over time. But the plan that you might make today Mm -hmm. might look quite different five years from now. And not quite different, but might look different. And so I just, you know, I, I don't overly emphasize all of the nuance of the financial plan, but instead to say, we're going to use this as part of our roadmap, and we're going to use that to help guide our future dialogue and our future conversations along the way. So that I hope that helps explain the planning process and why I'm a little less nuanced, perhaps, than, you know, some others might do. Absolutely. And I, I, I really love how you're uh, approaching this because it's, I mean, <laughs> the one thing about applying, I mean, we, you know, create a we manufacture financial planning software. One thing that yeah. drives me crazy, absolutely crazy, is basically that, you know, sometimes there is this one whole aspect, that, you know, 30 years from now on, somebody who's maybe 40 years old or worrying about what's going to happen, you know, let's say at 70. And in some cases, of course, I mean, there is a, there's one thing that we need to focus on because there's going to be, let's say, you know, we are creating an implication for, I don't know, large tax, for example, my state or something like this. But if it's something that you have control over and you can modify over over next 30 years, there is really no point for you to be obsessed about this little detail. And right. there is no point also for software to be a- a- addressing some of those details. So I really like your approach. I mean, the, the, one of the biggest challenge I've seen advisors basically be, uh, you know, struggle with initially, especially when they get to planning, is they, they get into too much detail too quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes there's, you know, this investment focus, right? You need to address everything pretty much, but but planning is different. It's a science, it's an estimation science, really, or exercise in estimation, right? So you, you want to be directionally accurate, as you said, right? But your, your life might be completely different five years from now, especially given your, your clients, right? Because your clients, I mean, I may decide to, you know, join another airline after going to Middle East, let's say, and I, I will be a pilot for New Zealand or New Zealand, whatever, right? Precisely. So, so I think, especially in your case, it really makes sense to kind of have this kind of overall view and very quickly identify the levers that you have to be really cognizant of and, and, and then sort of adjust from there. So I really like this approach. I wish more people have, have this approach because that would make our life a little easier and simpler. It would. Yeah, it would. The other thing, Pavel, that I would just say that I've learned is that in general, and look, you're a, you're a math person. I've, I've got a quant background to a degree as well. I think in general, most people are not numerate. Numbers are something that don't come naturally to people, particularly bigger numbers or long timeframes. And so when you embark in a 
a highly quantitative exercise with people who just don't see numbers the same way that you do, right? If you're making financial plans every day, it's, it's intuitive to you, but it doesn't work the same way for everyone else. So you have to be able to, you know, really marry the, the qualitative aspects to the number stuff that goes along as well. And when, you know, when things are so far off in the future, the qualitative really does matter. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I just could not agree more. I think we can yeah. probably keep going there. Yeah. Uh, you know, exponential compound interest, right? I mean, that's, you yeah. know, people don't typically, you know, intuitively understand that, but that's awesome. So, okay. So let's talk about a little bit about, I have a little bit of an idea of how you approach advising clients. You know, let's talk about acquisition because this is an interesting part because, I mean, your whole approach to how you think about being as a company, but for example, serving clients, your, your whole approach has to be a little different because you, you can, it's hard for you to create separate marketing campaigns for all the different 30 countries, or maybe there's, you know, 180 some countries in the world, right? Yeah. And so you have to be very specific. And I think you probably get a lot of word of mouth, right? From the clients, basically that, you know, there's one pilot, there's another pilot and so on. So how does this typically happen right now? And then what do you think you can emphasize and how do you really portray or how do you want to be perceived by your clients and prospects as well? For sure. So I think you, you've really nailed the client acquisition strategy. What may work really well for you know a, a local advisor is doing a regular seminar or some you know in, informational session where you fill a room with people and you you sign a couple people up. I can't do that in any kind of scalable way, nor can you market in in any of these countries, right? So the 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 word of mouth aspect is critical, and I think for a lot of advisors, the organic growth is a big part of it. I think if you want to speed up your growth, well, there are, you know there are ways to market and and do that. But I think where I have made a conscious decision here has been to say that we are not looking to be a large asset manager. What we are looking to be is to be a small, high-quality asset manager. And the, the analogy that I like to use is the, the analogy of a, a neighborhood, a local neighborhood restaurant. And so the idea is that if you're from that neighborhood, you're familiar with the menu, you know you like the service. There are sometimes you come in, you're coming in for a quick meal. Sometimes you come in and you're going to sit and talk to the bartender for two hours about, about your life. But it is it's that community and it's that kind of local neighborhood feel. Now, if you're not from that neighborhood, you've probably never been to that restaurant. You've probably never heard of that restaurant and you don't need to know anything about it. There's a, there's a lot of restaurants out there. So it's the sort of, of think global, but be that sort of local institution. And that's really what, what we're trying to do. And so with each one of our interactions with clients, we're trying to have a very specific kind of feel for them that's that local neighborhood feel and then the you know the selfish angle is if we do a good job of that they're going to tell their pilot friend or they're going to tell whoever else to to come and and see what we do so it's a very much you know i think in there's a there's a trend these days to to think big to think about scale and that is the polar opposite of what we are doing yeah you know what I'm so glad you mentioned that, right? Because there's nothing wrong with, with thinking big and, and, and planning for significant growth or scale. 
But you need to you need to know that there is a cost associated with that, right? I mean, first of all, there's financial cost, resources cost. I mean, there's family cost, right? You have four children. You know, I have two. My life has changed dramatically after the first one, and my approach to work has to change. I, I think it's probably the same was the same in your case. So you're basically playing to your strengths, right? You're yeah. basically uh, you know where you're strong and how you can differentiate from other larger institutions, for example. And you don't have necessarily the same, I would say, limitations that large, for example, managers of mutual funds have, right? So that, you know, there's certain, let's say, asset allocation. And, and I mean, I don't want to get into the portfolios construction because this is going to be a big topic. And, and I don't think that it's going to be valuable for this conversation. But but it's 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 really nice that you're, you're basically portraying yourself as if you do a really good job, there is going to be more people that are going to be attracted to you. And it's going to be a very natural process. You're not trying to basically create, create you know, uh, you know, a campaign that basically turns leads, and you're trying to convert them and basically grow. You know, the practice this way, or acquiring, maybe growing very quickly to acquisition. So that's really awesome. And I think a lot of people, I think it's you know, it's great to have this level of self awareness that basically that's that's your goal. That's just this is what we want to do, and this is how we're going to get there. So that's that's fantastic. So. All right. So we talked about a little bit, you know, how you built your practice and about your past experience. I want to go back to this idea generation for a second, because I think, talk to me a little bit more about this idea generation. How do you actually leverage this or tactically in your business? I mean, how do you basically apply that thinking model and communicate with your clients about, you know, what you do to them? Because there is a lot of complexity in what you do. How do you simplify this down? How do you boil this down to a couple of ideas that's that's important? You know, what are some of the other elements about your practice that this idea generation would impact? Yeah, so I'll I'll come into that in a sec. But what I think that that it's useful to just think about how much our industry has changed over the last couple of decades. And so, you know, you think about 20 years ago or a little more than that, this was very much a transactional business, right? And so what you wanted to do was generate ideas so that you had a reason to call a client to then put in a significant trade ticket, right? That was the idea of what what the idea generation was uh, in the past. You saw the industry evolve from being that trade execution platform to, in large part, what really kind of became a mutual fund model, right? Where what the advisor was trying to do was saying, I'm not a stock picker now. I'm a manager of managers and I'm going to pick managers and you're going to pay me an ongoing fee to do that. And then what we saw more was more of this trend towards the holistic way of thinking, the asset allocation, the financial planning. And, and really what I think what, what that did was it focused on the, the relationship with the client, not just on the execution function, because things like the, you know, the cost of execution went down by an order of magnitude and then another order of magnitude again, right? So if you're trying to have your business based on transactions, like that's, that's not it. And so we've we've now seen technology come into play, right? And so in in large part, you're seeing the the robo advisor type of platforms out there, and they really haven't changed the economics or model for advisors. What they've done was they changed the relationship for do it yourself investors, where they might have been, you know, doing everything on their own. Now the robo helps them a little bit, but the you know there was this view that the technology was going to change in the investment business, particularly the the higher net worth uh, wealth management, and it really hasn't 
changed it at all. So I think that what it tells you is that it's it's really about trust. It's about uh, the person that you are working with. And I, I think that's just an important lens to think about because as I think about what my niche is going to be and what it has been is that you just have to understand how you fit into that that process. And so for me, when, you know, look, when I think about idea generation, it's it's more about the process for me and, and having a systematic way of thinking about what you're doing with each incremental investment dollar and making sure that you have really thought through your thesis, that if the market is supporting your view, that you're still updating your view. And if the market is going the other way on your view, understanding what your strategy is going to be at that point, right? So what my background showed me was that you could have a, a great idea and your, you know, the market can tell you otherwise. And so the idea generation is important, but it's now going to be the follow-up on what you do when the market gives you different information. Cool. That's awesome. I really like that. And thank you for, for the introduction because that gives us a little bit more context for how you're thinking. That's awesome. Well, in our in some of the conversations in, in the pre-interview, actually, we, we talked about a little bit of transparency. So, and I know that's that's a big part of your practice. Talk to me a little bit more about how you think about transparency in our business. Yep. What I've made a real effort on here is to talk about how our industry functions, how it's structured, what the incentives are, and to give clients a little more information around why all the parties are doing the things that they're doing. And what I'm not trying to do is have spent so much time with the client on educating them on all of the nuance on, of, of the industry. They won't benefit from that. But what I don't want to say is that talking to clients about details in, in the industry is a low value item where if I'm doing that, I'm not doing something that's going to produce revenue, right? My whole view here is always focus on the client, focus on how this relates to the client. And then the good outcome for us as a business will come from that rather than saying, how do I extract, you know, more revenue out of a client? That's not what we're trying to do. The view is that if we do a good job, the clients will value that and the revenue will come. Right. So in the education part, you know, I think back to my mother-in-law did her master's degree in early numeracy for children. Okay. And what, what her work said was that if you spend more time on math with little kids, they don't end up being better at math later. But what they're able to do is understand concepts more broadly and have a better ability to put themselves in in the context because they understand that the world is a little bigger. So when we go back to the idea of financial planning at the beginning and objectives and objective-based financial planning, if the client doesn't really know exactly where they fit into the larger context, then they don't necessarily know what all their objectives are. So my, my view is similar to what that research showed, which is help people to understand the context a little more, and you'll end up with a you know a, a more satisfied or actual self-actualized client who then will value your work more highly. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you mentioned education for a second time, and I think it's worth to underline that as well. That the effort that you as an advisor put in education is actually tremendously valuable because I mean for so many reasons. Right now, the the current I would say topic around the research that FP Canada is doing is just the, the is the implementation gap, which is basically there's some great plans they're not implemented. Why those plans are not implemented? And we've seen uh, from our internal research at Snap Projections that you know a lot of that 
comes with education, right? If you, you may have this perfect plan, but if you, you know, if you have this model that you plan in back office and you basically gather all the data from the client and sort of you lock yourself in a room for two days and come up with this perfect plan and then try to present this the, the, the plan to the client, that, that doesn't necessarily work in all cases. But I think so if you switch the approach and if you are much more collaborative and you're educating clients about the impacts of, of different choices they can make, so as you are explaining different strategies, then all of a sudden you have plan that basically you've, you know, you've built together. <laughs> they, well, they sort of built this plan themselves with your assistance, with your help, and you're guiding them and you have the guardrails in place. And then the implementation is really easy, right? So I don't know, do you see, uh, do you see those kind of parallels in your practice? For sure. And, and the other two parts that are really related to that, Pavel, are things like being educational on fees and benchmarking, right? And so I think that there has been a perception in the past that, you know, talking about fees isn't isn't useful. Talking about benchmarking isn't useful. These those are areas where the optics for you aren't necessarily for you as the advisor, that is, aren't necessarily very positive, right? If you are underperforming, you know, all other things equal, if your your strategy is identical to the benchmark and you're underperforming a benchmark, you might not want to talk about benchmarking, right? And similarly with fees, I think that there has been a tremendous effort, particularly from the, the robo industry, to market to people about fees and fees are very important, but it's, you know, it's one variable, right? And so what I'm trying to say to clients here is, I think if we are having the conversation about things like fees, things like benchmarking, that clients will feel that you are being open and transparent. And I'll tell you, when when a client, when someone is referred to me and they come into the office and I say, well, what have your past conversations with your advisor been like around you know, things like benchmarking? And they say, I've never heard of that word before. That's a tremendous opportunity for us in our practice, right? Because it's part of our process. And it's the same same issue on, on the fee front. I don't have to be, you know, I, I am very competitive on, on my fee, but, you know, I don't have to be. What I think I have to do, though, is educate clients on where we are relative to our peers on fees and what that actually means to them. Fantastic. And by the way, that's a really great question to ask when you're meeting your clients. <laughs> What uh, about the previous conversations with uh, with advisors? So that's that's awesome. So I see how you're building the practice and how you build the practice, and that's that's a really great model. And I think it's still, I would say, not a typical model in the industry right now. So then, good for you. you have a great opportunity in the market, and <laughs> not a lot of competition. But in terms of some of the challenges in building the practice, I mean, what has been challenging for you as you sort of switched from more institutional money management uh, and, and and products to the retail model and, and to your current niche? you're serving right now. For sure. I, I think one of the big differences in, in retail versus institutional is that in the institutional business, often the person sitting on the other side of the table from you is at a minimum knows what you know and typically knows more than you know, right? And that's unique because when you say something to that you know, event-driven hedge fund manager, they know how to rip apart your idea. And on the retail side, clients, I think when you talk to them sometimes, if you talk about a particular issue in your asset allocation or your strategy, they nod and often even smile, but they're not really taking it in. And and it's you know they don't have that same background necessarily. So you have to put that, that extra effort and extra time 
into yeah. each one of those relationships. And that's something that, you know, requires a little more patience and a little more understanding, I think, because you are responsible for their strategy. In the institutional world, it's buyer beware, right? You are sharing your information and that other person, it's their risk, not yours. In the retail business, when you make a recommendation to a client, you every time you are sticking your neck out, right? And you have to be thinking about not just how smart your idea is, but does this make sense, you know, for the risk tolerance, for the objectives of the client, and always putting it into that context, which is, you know, which is a, a little bit different. I, I think the other, the other place that things differ a lot is that there's a little more hand-holding in retail. And I could say that when, when there's a theme that shows up, on a client's radar. And, you know, maybe this past summer, it was some of the fears around a recession coming, you know, maybe it's around something like a global pandemic. And so when things hit clients' radars, it tends to happen en masse because it's coming from, you know, global news sources. And so you need to be there to talk to them about what is going on. And the reality is, you know, if it's a, you know, some global health issue, I don't know much more than you know, necessarily, right? I'm not an expert on on viruses. But what we can do is at least look back at history to try to help provide some context to clients, and then be very specific about how we think about that in the context of the, the their investment strategy. And I think if you can communicate that to clients, if you are right, that's great. But if you're wrong, people understand that you will be wrong sometimes as long as you have a basis for doing what you do. And it comes back again to that that conversation. So what I'm trying to do with clients is have them actively part of that conversation. And then they can at least know that what we're doing is based on research, evidence, and the best information that's available to us at the time. And I think that's something that people explicitly appreciate. That makes a lot of sense. And so I remember another conversation with one advisor, larger advisor, and they basically, they change the language very gently when you were talking to clients. So they, uh, they basically say, well, we don't know what's going to happen. As you said, I mean, there's nobody has a crystal ball, but what we can do, we can prepare for the inevitable. So the conversation is not, this is what we're going to do when the markets you know, fall. Actually, no, the initial conversation was basically, this is what we're going to do if the markets fall. And they changed the if to, this is what we're going to do when the markets fall, right? Because, you know, it's going to happen. Right. We don't know when, but yeah. it, it's not it's not a question of if, it's, it's a question of when, really. So that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and I really like that you underline the, the differences in the information asymmetry that you have versus, for example, advising institutional advisors. And, and when you switch to retail, that's a little different. And typically, if you have more information, you have, I mean, it's better for you, right? Because having known, having better, having being equipped with knowledge, having being being better informed, that's actually usually helpful. But here we have to be very careful because even though you may feel, you know, that you're, well, you're the expert clearly, but you have to make sure that what you're actually explaining is going to land. And if it doesn't, then then it's an issue, right? Because it's uh, it's going to come back sooner or later. And if you're if you're thinking about building a long term relationship with a client, I mean, that's uh, you have to be focused on that. 
So that's that's fantastic. All right. So well, I joked about the children and the impact and being a challenge and growing the business. So you have four children. I have two, and we're barely able to keep up with everything. So how is you know was the switch from the institutional money management to basically being you know able to run your own practice sort of better in terms of you know being able to combine the family life and 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 your personal life and professional life? How did it play out for you? <laughs> You're right. I think being a, a parent adds some extra pressures on things like your your time. But you know, I, I mean, look, you you are you need to be organized and you need to take advantage of things like technology. And and these days, with a, a good internet connection and a Skype account and uh, you know your laptop there's no excuse for not being able to to service your clients with the technology that is available to us i think the you know one of the one of the lifestyle decisions we made on leaving toronto and coming to vancouver is that the market opens 3 hours earlier here and so i i happen to be wired as a morning person and you know, i wake up pretty early and and be productive and then I'm able to in the evening you know be productive in a non-professional sense as well in in the family sense and so I think that that really is the key and and also look I mean like the other big part of it is that if I think if you are doing this job and using things like your intuition to try to be a portfolio manager or be reactionary, you know, there's something that happened in the market and now I got to, you know, now I have to act. Uh, I, I think that is one big change that is taking place in this industry and one where, you know, there's this newer crop of, of advisors who have, who have come into the industry who are just more systematic about the way that they're going to be acting, whether it's on planning or investment management. And so formalizing how you manage money and how you view the world uh, will allow you to, again, constantly take in new information, but make investment decisions or make decisions on clients' behalf where you are not doing it based on your instinct, right? And I think that when we think back to that, you know, the model we described, the transactional model of, of 20 years ago or more, it was a more instinctual role. And, and in one of your podcasts, you had a great guest on who was talking about Daniel Kahneman and Thinking Fast and Slow, which to me is one of the uh, most valuable books that I've read. I recommend it to, to all of our clients. It's a great book. It's a great book. And, and, and so much of the difference between system one and system two, I think clients think of their financial advisor as more of a system one thinker, someone who is using their, their gut instinct, making fast decisions. And really, it, it should be much more of that, uh, when possible, that system two thinking, which is much more deliberate is a little more patient, is less reactionary. And so that's a big part of what I am doing is thinking about the various kinds of bias in, in the work that, that we do and the work that I do. And I've found that with a more formalized process, the constraints on my time are a little different because again, I can formalize both my client interactions and the portfolio management part, and I'm not reacting to the latest you know, 
panic of of the week. That makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of wisdom what you what you just shared right now. So <laughs> I think that's being much more proactive versus just uh, reactive use, using this, this second brain, basically, that you have. I mean, first of all, it's going to impact you know, how you work with you know, yourself, you know, how you work with your staff, how you work with your clients, right? And because emotions, I mean, that's a big part of, of investing. And we've seen Dow just tanked, uh, I think, uh, over 1,000 points on Monday, just a couple of days ago, and then yesterday as well. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very timely topic right now <laughs> to yeah. basically think about separating the emotional aspects and then the reactive ways of, of making decisions. So that's extremely valuable. Well, so there are a couple of uh, questions as we are coming to wrap up here. So it sounds like you have a lot of interesting projects right now in the practice, but you know, what, what are some of those projects that you're most excited in, in your practice over over next you know, six to 12 months? Are you thinking about, I don't know, improving or formalizing some of the strategies internally in the practice, or are there some new opportunities? What are you excited to basically be working on over the next six to 12 months? Yeah, I, I think that, again, when, when I think back to the, the culture that we've created here within, with on our office, there are a few things that I would love to have as tools available to really uh, primarily improve the communication with clients. And, and there are limitations around what you're able to do and how you communicate with clients. And so I'm thinking more and more about being timely with feedback to clients. So for example, there's a, you know, there's an event happening in the world and I'm going to get a lot of incoming questions on that. And I want to be able to spend time on those, but there are only so many hours. So what can I be doing to be more proactive around sharing how we view something or what the data is showing on some particular subject matter so that clients can know that on a more timely basis and have more of a connection to what we are doing here. So that that to me is the the biggest piece that we are focused on is how do we share more information with clients on a on a timely basis and uh, i think apart from that though pavel really the to me the secret sauce for what we are doing here is far more boring than any big initiative or, or piece of technology it's coming in and giving clients a consistent experience each time they communicate with us and so it's much more of saying to people you know or giving giving them the feel that you know what what you've come to expect is what you get here right and that's the idea again of that of the local restaurant is that we're we're not going to have the most elaborate menu item there's not going to be drinks that are on fire at the bar it's going to be a lot more boring than that right and so i'm not trying to not answer the question but it's i i don't know that by doing anything big or bold, we're going to change the client experience, right? We're, or, or not, we're not going to improve necessarily that client experience. We might make it a little more complicated though. Well, you know what, being excited about uh, improving your business in a, in a very kind of steady fashion, especially, or and then enabling the different pillars is like communication. That's huge. I mean, yep. that's super exciting, actually, project as well, because it's not only you're providing more context and more information on a much more proactive basis to your clients, it's going to be definitely appreciated by clients. So that's going to impact client satisfaction, retention, all the metrics around client experience around with your firm. Plus, it really impacts positively just the use of your time because you're becoming operationally more efficient, right? If you don't have to have to have those one-on-one conversations with clients, but you have more kind of conceptualized, maybe tailored messaging, depending on, let's say, how you segment clients. I mean, that's that's hugely valuable. I think we were talking about, I think, 
with one of the guests actually from the uh, head of financial services at Wellbar about how they leverage the robot advisory platform for that kind of just-in-time client communication. So uh, I really like that. It's there's a lot of opportunities there. For sure. So, Sasha, you shared a lot of wisdom so far, but this podcast is all about growing your practice. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? If you're going to focus on one, just one thing, what would that be? I think it would be what, it's actually something that you said that I think has been most interesting, which is the, the concept of knowing yourself and knowing what drives you and what your skills are. And so if you're someone that is coming into this role, understand that uh, particularly at an independent firm, you are the brand and this is about how you are going to relate to those clients. And I think if you're doing, if you're acting in a way that's disingenuous, you will not have a strong relationship over time. If you are someone who is extremely focused on sales, don't play the role of active portfolio manager. If you're someone who thinks you are not very good at sales, maybe focus your efforts on the things you are good at. And and in our world today, I think for advisors to have a successful long-term practice, you are going to have clients that reflect you over time. And the clients who you will have the strongest relationships are those who you can relate to the most. And if you want to have a practice that has a bit of a around it, know yourself, and then play to those strengths uh, on behalf of your clients and, and you'll you know have clients that fit for you. So I think that's really the key is understanding who you are and how that's going to fit for your clients. That's a fantastic piece of advice. So Sasha, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe, uh, I don't know, talk about the industry, talk about processes around client communication, or maybe get some advice on, on how do you serve clients who are expats, for example, or for, for example, who want to uh, repatriate maybe because that's a very unique specialization of your practice. Yep. How would they do that? What's the best way to reach you right now? So I think we'll, we'll have linked to my contact information with the podcast link. You can find me on the Aligned Capital website as well. And we're always keen to, uh, to hear from new people who are like-minded. Awesome. Sasha, thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. Pablo, it was my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate if you left us a great review in iTunes because that helps us get discovered. And if you want to get in touch with us, please email podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.